Amen. Awesome. So again, as we're going through the book of Romans, now, man, we get to one of my favorite chapters in the book of Romans, which is Romans chapter 12. Um, and we get into the topic now of spiritual gifts uh, as, as it pertains to the body of Christ. And so as we've been going through all these just awesome chapters in the book of Romans. We see that Paul laid out for us in 11 chapters. In 11 chapters, Paul laid out for us what God has done for us. We've covered topics such as redemption, justification, sanctification, glorification, and, and God's sovereignty. Meaning what God has done for us as believers through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Right? Redemption means that God redeemed us from uh, our, 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 our state of being lost. Right? Through our belief in Jesus Christ, God has redeemed us unto himself now. Right? He's, made of, he's justified us, meaning that he's made us just as we have never sinned because of our belief in, 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 in what Christ did on the cross. Right? He sanctified us, meaning that He set us apart for His glory and for His purposes. The, Romans also tells us that, that God glorified us together with His Son, Jesus. And then in the past chapter, we saw how God's sovereignty, meaning that word sovereign means that, that, that God knows everything. Right? He's all-knowing. And, and, and how God's sovereignty plays a part in salvation right? and, and in God's redemption and justification and, and sanctification and glorification. So it's just some deep, heavy, heavy truths uh, that, that, that we've been covering here in these past few chapters. But now, in the last chapters of the book of Romans, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul is going to focus on what the believer's life should look like in response to what God has done for us. So after these 11 chapters of just, look, God has sanctified you, He saved you, He's redeemed you, He's glorified you, all these things, 11 chapters. Now Paul focuses on the, the believer's response. Because that leaves us with the question, well, if God did all those things for me, then what, what, what does that say about me? What can I do now for God? Right? Where does that put me at? And so Paul's going to cover that in these next few chapters. And so we're going to see what our relationship to other believers should look like. What our relationship to the world around us, government, should look like also. And we're going to see what our relationship to the Lord should look like. Right? And, and, and really we're going to see... How does my relationship with God affect my daily life? As it should. Right? I mean, think about it. You have a personal relationship with the God who created all the universe. You would think it would make you a little different. Right? You would think it would, it would affect your life in some way. Right? And so we're going to cover that in these next few chapters. And so picking it up actually in uh, verse 33 of chapter 11, he starts off by saying, Oh, the death of the richest both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. He says, How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? I just quoted Job and Isaiah there. He says, Or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And so as Paul is finishing up his chapter there, chapter 11, right? he talks about God's sovereignty, meaning His all his knowledge in, in the salvation of individuals. And Paul can't respond in any way but just to begin glorifying God. Right? As he's describing or trying to describe just God's sovereignty, he just breaks out in this praise. He breaks out in this praise. And, and, and it's this spontaneous praise, really. And really we see in the, in the apostle this sense of overwhelming joy. Right? Over the depths of the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. That's what he's saying. As he's talking about God's sovereignty, he's just like, man, he just breaks out, oh man, the depths of his riches, right? The depths of the riches of both his wisdom and knowledge of God. Pretty much he's saying, man, he says, I can't explain God, but he's so awesome, right? In, in, in simple terms, that's what he's saying. God is so awesome, man, he's, he's unexplainable, right? And so there are things about God, actually, as Paul describes this, as he just responds to this, we see that there's things about God that are difficult to understand. And it's these things that God is... That We have extra ones in the back. <laughs> cool. And so, uh, again, as we see, Paul is just describing these, these things about God. And his only response is, man, to, to, to just begin praising God. Right? To just begin praising God for, for, for God's unsearchable uh, riches. Now, with this in mind, you know, we know that there are things about God. A lot of things about God. There's a lot of things about God 
that are difficult for us as human beings to understand. There's things about God that us as human beings we need to know that we're never going to understand. There's certain questions that I've asked God that I'm never going to get an answer for. Right? And many people, man, we have all these questions about God or, 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 or to God and that we're never going to get an answer to. Why? Because there's just things about God that us in our finite understanding or our finite minds will never grasp. And that's just the reality of it. Right? Now for some, this causes frustration. Some people, right, even some believers, would think about the, 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 knowledge, the sovereignty of God and these unsearchable riches as, as Paul describes them. And it will cause them to, to grow bitter. Right? It will cause them to grow uh, uh, frustrated. Right? That they don't have a God that they can fully understand. If only I knew why God did this. If only I knew why God uh, allowed this. If only I knew what's the purpose behind God doing this or allowing this in my life. Right? And so for some, this would cause frustration. But for the Apostle Paul, it causes great joy. Right? Knowing that there's a God in heaven who created the universe, who created me, who knows me personally, and whose ways are past finding out. And and really, that should be the response of every believer as we think about God and as you approach God, knowing that there's a God in heaven who you're you're never going to fully understand. Our response should be that of praise, right? It should cause peace in our hearts knowing, right, there's a God, you know, whom I've given my life to who knows way more than I do, right? There's a verse in Isaiah 55, uh, chapter 55, verse 8 through 9, one of my favorite verses. Just for my thoughts are not your thoughts, says the Lord, nor are my ways your ways. For as far as the heavens are from the earth, that's how different my ways are from your ways and my thoughts from your thoughts. Right? The sovereignty of God. And when you think about it, again, some people will get frustrated at the fact that they can't fully understand God. But if you think about it, you know, you don't want a God who, or I don't want a God who I can fully understand. Right? If I have a God who I knew his every move, I knew what he was thinking, I knew why he did things, I knew his purposes... And that will put God at my level. I know God. Right? That will put God at my level. And that's not much of a God. That's not a God worth, worth serving if it's a God who's at my level. Right? If I have, if I have a God who I can understand, if I have a God whom I could uh, you know, predict what he's going to do, right? know why he does things, then uh, what's the point of even having this God who's at my level? Right? I myself should just be God. Right? Because he's at my level. But because we have a God who's sovereign, right? who's eternally uh, 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 merciful Who's eternally uh, Just uh, Again his sovereignty His, his goodness His mercy uh, All these different things About God Right That should cause us to, to find rest Knowing right My hands Are in the life Of a God who is Incredible Amen. Who is incredible Right My life is in the hands Of a God Who doesn't need my advice Or my help Right My life is Is, is in the hands of a God Whom, whom I can't know What he's thinking Or, or he's going to do Right my life is in the hands of a God who can't learn anything new because He knows everything already. Right? Know this. This is, man, this is theology. This is doctrine. God can't learn anything new because He's sovereign. He knows all things already. Right? He does not change His mind and He Himself is unchanging. In theological terms, it's called the immutability of God, meaning that God doesn't change. Right? God doesn't change. That he is, He's immutable. Right? And so Paul will say something similar to this they're in the book of Colossians as he's describing uh, uh, Jesus and he says this in Colossians 1.16 he says for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers all things were created through him and for him interesting that in Colossians God, uh, Paul is applying these verses to the person of Jesus Christ right? and yet here in Romans Paul says this about God the Father. He says, All the depths of His riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways, past finding out. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. So we see that Paul attributes both of these things to God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ. Right? And again, he's just praising God for His sovereignty. He gets to a point, he realizes, man, God is just past knowing. Right? There's no way I can know what He's going to do, what He's thinking, what's going on right in the mind of God. And he begins to praise God for those things. And on that, and, and, just, uh, and writing on those coattails, he jumps into chapter 12, where he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good, and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
two verses, but they're so, so deep. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. So remember, when you're studying the Bible, reading the Bible, whenever you see that word, therefore, you got to always ask yourself, what is it there for? Right? It's always pointing to a previous thought. And so in response to everything that we've learned about God in chapters 1 through 11, and in response to what Paul says about God in, in those last verses of, of, of uh, chapter 11, where he says, uh, again, his knowledge, his wisdom, he says, what should the believer's life look like? And he answers that. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, because of all these things that we've just learned about our salvation, redemption, justification, glorification, the power of God, his sovereignty. Because of these things, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, to do what? He says, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Right? Now, when Paul uses that phrase there, I beseech you, it's actually one word in the Greek. And it's the word uh, parakaleo, which... By definition is to call to one side or to summon or to or to admonish, to exhort. Right? So it's something not by force. He's saying, Alright, because this is who God is, because this is what God has done, then we have to do this. No. Paul's saying, but because this is who God is, then look, I strongly encourage you. Offer your body as a living sacrifice. Right? It's something willing. So even then God's still not gonna force us, even though he has every single right to. But he's not gonna force us, he's given us a free will. And so he says, because of this says, I beseech you, again, not by force, but willingly to offer to God your life, right, as a living sacrifice. Now, keep in mind that in an Old Testament perspective, in an Old Testament context, a person was to bring a sacrifice to be killed on the altar as a form of worship unto God, right? You've been with us through the study of Leviticus. We've covered that in numerous aspects. Uh, there's a sacrifice for this, a sacrifice for that. Right? They were to bring an animal, bring it to the altar, slay it there, and it would be a, a, a form of worship unto God. Right? So in an Old Testament context, a person was to bring a sacrifice to be killed on the altar as a form of worship unto God. But Paul speaking here, kind of using this play on words, he says, offer your own life as an act of worship unto God. He says, not animals anymore. Right? Not goats and bulls and rams and all these things. He says, but now offer your life right? as, a, as a living sacrifice unto God. Now, keep in mind that the Old Testament sacrifice, the bull, the ram, the goat, the lamb, all these things that they would come to sacrifice. The Old Testament sacrifice was brought alive right? and they would kill it at the altar as a service unto God. But he says, but you, he says, you come, bring your life, he says, and not die, but he says, live. Bring your life and live unto the service of God as a form of worship. So Paul says, as you offer your life to God, so you could use it in whichever way he sees fit. He says, it's a form of worship unto the Lord. It's a form of worship. Right? And really that's what that word means, service. Right? When he says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Really in the Greek what it's saying is, which is your reasonable worship. You think, man, how can I worship God in light of what He's done for me? And Paul says, the reasonable thing is that you offer your life for, for His use. Lord, here's my life. Do whatever you want with it. He says, that's the reasonable form of worship unto God in light of what He's done for us. That word service there in the Greek, it's uh, latreia, which, which means the service and worship of God according to the requirements of the Levitical law. And so that's what Paul is saying. Keep in mind that, that he's writing to a lot of you know Jews there uh, at the church in Rome, and, and they would they would have understood this immediately. You no, know, man, look, we've been sacrificing animals on the altar for thousands of years, right? Ever since the Levitical law was instituted back in in the book of Leviticus, when the when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, so this would have been something very familiar to them. Where Paul's saying, all right, don't bring animals anymore. Keep in mind they still had the second temple at this time. He says, all right, don't bring animals to the to the altar anymore, but bring yourself. Right? Not to die, right? not to offer yourself and right? kill yourself at the altar, but to live unto God. Death unto self, yeah. But living your life unto God as a form of worship. Right? You're taking the place of this animal right now. Now you're worshiping the Lord with your life lived out for His service. And so the question comes up, man, what can you offer a God who has everything? What do you give someone who has everything? Not even that's enough. Your heart. Your heart. Right? What do we offer a God who owns everything? Right? Our life, our heart, our surrendered will to His. Psalm 24.1 says, 
that the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Says, and the world and those who dwell therein. Right? The, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But there's one thing that God will not take by force, and that's your own free will. That's your heart. Your own free will. That's one thing that God will not violate. Even though the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, He will not violate your free will. And so what can you give a God who has everything? And your own free will. God, I give you my life. Use it for your service. Right? And not only offer your lives or your bodies, Paul would say, you know, as a sacrifice to God, but resist being conformed to the patterns of this world as you're doing so. It says, and instead transform your life by renewing your mind. That's what he says. And do not be conformed to the world. So in addition to offering your life as a living sacrifice unto God, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed. Two opposites. Conform, don't be conformed, but be instead be transformed. Right? And how do you be transformed? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, Paul would say. So again, not just offering your bodies or your lives unto, unto the service of the Lord, but also resisting Resist being conformed to the patterns of this world and instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so we see these two factors in play now in the life of the believer. Right? We see these two factors in play, which is uh, conformity and transformation. And in every single believer, any, anybody who's given their life to the Lord, anybody who's confessed Jesus as their Lord and Savior, anybody who's believed in the death, resurrection, and, and, and ascension of Jesus Christ, and, and make him, made him your personal savior. There's these two factors at play in your life now. Conformity and transformation. Right? Now, by definition, the Encyclopedia Britannica defines conformity as this. Trip out. It says, The process whereby people change their beliefs, their attitudes, their actions, or perceptions to move closely, to more closely match those held by groups to which they belong or want to belong, or by groups whose approval they desire. Notice that. That's what it means to be conformed. Pretty much people please it. Another definition would say, uh, behavior in accordance with socially accepted conventions or standards. And so Paul would say, hey, don't be conformed. As a believer who's giving your life to the Lord, he says, don't be conformed to the world. Don't bow your own will to the, to the, to, to the structure of the world and to the, what the world wants. Right, don't please and don't try to fit that, that mold of, of what the world is portraying. He says, but instead, be transformed. And we see that one of the biggest disruptors and one of the biggest hindrances in the life of the believer, in the, in the life of the person who's given their life to the Lord, one of the biggest disturbers and one of the, the biggest hindrances is conformity. Conformity, right? One of the biggest disruptors. It's conformity. Man, conformity will stunt your growth as a believer. Conformity to the world will stunt your growth as a Christian. Right? And we see that so many Christians want to uh, walk and talk and act like the world. Right? They seek the world's approval, even if it means compromising their walks with the Lord. And it's like, man, God has saved you from this, and yet you return back to this because you seek the world's approval. And that's what Paul is warning against. So look, man, you've been justified glorified, redeemed, sanctified. Offer your life into the Lord and don't seek to be conformed to the pattern of the world. And that goes beyond a, a physical image, right? That's not even what I'm trying to get. That's not even part of the issue. But he says, your heart, man. Where's your heart at? Who are you trying to please, the world or God? Right? I would say, man, if, if you're so concerned about what the world thinks about you, then man, serve them. Instead, I, I'm going to serve God. I care more about what God thinks about me in my personal life than what the world thinks. Right, but that's one of the biggest disruptors and, and, and hindrances to Christian growth is conformity. Conformity. I love a proverb that says this. It puts it up plainly for us. Proverbs 26, 11 says, As a dog returns to his vomit, it says, So a fool repeats his foolishness or his folly. And that's what Paul's describing. A believer who's been sanctified, sealed, redeemed, justified, and he goes, he's saved now, walking with the Lord, but he returns back a to society, to the world, right? To, to fit the world's mold and pattern. It's like a dog returning to his vomit, the, the writer of Proverbs would say, right? Like a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool repeats his foolishness. And so we see that as believers and heirs of this, of this new life in Christ, man, we're to constantly be being transformed. It's a never-ending, ongoing 
process. We're to constantly be being transformed. You're never going to get to a place where you're like, all right, man, I've arrived. I'm good. That's it. The process ended for me like 10 minutes ago. No, it's a constant, ongoing, never-ending process to be conformed into the image of Christ. Right? And it, it should be. Really what, what Paul is describing here, he says, all right, don't be conformed, but instead be transformed. He, it, that, that word there, it's, a, it's, a, it's an ongoing tense. Be continually transformed. In, the, in our English dictionary or our English verbiage, we would describe that as, as, a, as a metamorphosis. Meaning, a metamorphosis is, is a change from within unto maturity. Right? A change from within unto maturity. And that's what Paul is talking about. Right? A change from within unto maturity, until spiritual maturity. And so you might be asking yourself, well, how do I do that? How do I do that? It seems hard. And Paul would say, look, by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. And how do I do that, Paul? Well, we see that the Bible tells us, right, that God transforms our minds and makes us spiritually mature through time spent memorizing, meditating on, Studying and reading His Word. It's His Word. He would say early on in, in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. We see it's always been His Word. Right? Throughout the years, people have come up with other methods. All right, well, if you just uh, listen to this or do this or uh, pay this much, hey, man, it's going to just boost your spiritual growth. And really, man, take it back to the basics. Just read the Word. Spend time in His Word. Be a lover of His Word. Be a lover of His presence. Right? And, and you'll see that, that your mind will begin to, to, to renew. If you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you could easily look back a year ago. If, if you've been constantly in the Word, you could easily look back a year ago and say, man, my mind was, was so different back then from just a year. Right? I was spending so much time in the Word because it's His Word that washes us, that cleanses us, mm-hmm. that transforms us, that renews our mind. Right? So He says, be, don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that's through the word right that's through the word that's through the word now interesting that paul says hey renew your mind right he doesn't say renew your feelings renew your emotions renew anything else but he says renew your mind why do you say that because what you believe in your mind will translate to how you live your life what you believe in your mind will translate to how you live your life if i believe that there's that there is a God in heaven, but He doesn't care about the way I act. He doesn't care about the, how I live my, my, my personal life behind closed doors. He doesn't care if I sin. He doesn't care if I do this, is that, the other. He doesn't care how I treat my wife. He doesn't care how I treat my, 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 my close friends or my family. That's, gonna, that's what I think in my head is going to translate to how I act towards those individuals. If I believe that there's a God in heaven who created all these things, but He's not uh, power enough, powerful enough to, 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 to keep me, Right until until that day that I go to be with them, then it's gonna cause my walk to be shaky, then be cause my walk to be doubtful. If I believe that there's a God in heaven who doesn't care about uh, sin or any of these things, again, it's gonna translate into the way I walk. More than that, if I believe that me as a Christian, right, all these different promises that God has for me don't apply to me, it's gonna change the way I see myself, right, as a son of God or you as a daughter of God. It's gonna translate into the way you live. And so what you believe in your mind will translate into how you live your life. That's why Paul said, hey, you're to renew your mind. Man, take out all that junk that we learned, that we learned in the world. The world says, you're this, you're that, the other. You're unworthy. You're, 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 man, you're a mistake. You're this. And what does the word say? Man, God said, before you were even in your mother's womb, he says, I knew you. I, I created you for a purpose. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I've, I've redeemed you. Jesus says, hey, I didn't come to condemn you, man, but... But, 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 that, but to save you. So what you believe in your mind will translate into how you live your life. And so Paul says, renew your mind. Right? And we know that we do this through the study, through the, the, the meditating on His Word, the Bible. And so we see that as we are transformed on the inside, the proof will be shown on the outside. He says, so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Right? As we're transformed on the inside... The proof will be shown on the outside. And that's something that just happens naturally. Right? You don't have to strive for it. Right? And as others can see what good and acceptable and perfect will of God is through your life, simply live out for Him. 
That's it. You don't have to worry about being a good witness. You don't have to, you don't have to worry about all these things. It will just be a natural outflow of your relationship with the Lord and of the renewing of your mind through the scriptures. Something happens here and it's going to be shown outwardly. Don't focus on, I, I got to do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I get the little checklist. Throw your day right. I'm not supposed to do this, this, that, and the other. No. Just focus about spending time with Jesus. Focus about spending time in the Word. And all these other things will just be a natural outflow of your relationship with the Lord. And so he goes on to say there in verse 3, he says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one of us a measure of faith. Verse 4, he says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one in Christ, and individually we're members of one another. And so we see now, we've seen our relationship to God, and now Paul's going to focus on our relationship to each other, meaning the church, believers, right? And so Paul's about to go into the topic of, of spiritual gifts here in chapter 12 of, of Romans, right? Spiritual gifts in the church. But first, he's going to warn us. Before he gets into spiritual gifts and before he points people out and before he points out strengths in, 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 in the body of Christ, he gives a warning, a fair warning. He says, look, man, before I even tell you any, any of this, he says, don't think so much of yourself. Right? You're not as, as, as important as you think you are. He says, let no one think of himself more highly than he ought to think, right? But to think soberly as God has dealt to each one of us a measure of faith, right? First, he warns us about the dangers of pride, really, right? When it comes to exercising these gifts. One of my favorite things to talk about is spiritual gifts. I love walking in them, practicing them, helping others uh, uh, walk in their own gifts, helping others discover their gifts. I love helping people uh, be, be, be uh, knowledgeable about their own gifts. Why? Because the Bible tells us this in Ephesians 4 that, that God, that the purpose of the church is for the edifying of the saints, of the believers. Right? And the only way we can edify each other is if we're walking in our spiritual gifts. But Paul says, again, before he even talks about spiritual gifts, he says, all right, let's be real about it. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you should. Right? And, and, it, and it's important that he says that because we know that us as humans... And being saved, being Christians, being believers, still in our, in our carnal nature, we see that our natural tendency as human beings is to falsely evaluate ourselves as something important. Right? We always think of ourselves as more than we should. Right? That's our human tendency as believers. It's our human tendency right? to, to think of ourselves as something more important than we really are and to begin to get puffed up when God starts using you. So many ministers, so many people have fallen Right, because they let get they let pride get to them. Right, man, God starts using them. Their name starts getting around. All of a sudden, you see their name on a flyer. Next thing you know, man, you can't even approach the person because they're so. Oh man, you gotta make an appointment, or you gotta go through this person or through that person. It's like, man, you missed the point. Right, you missed the point. Pride, pride. It's in Proverbs, I believe, that it says uh, six things. You know, the Lord abhors seven is, is, is uh, he hates, and the last thing he mentions is pride. Right, pride. And so Paul warns me, he says, all right, look, man, before I talk about spiritual gifts, make sure you, you, you have your heart in check, your mind in check. Don't let, uh, don't let your pride get to you. Don't think of yourself more than, 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 than you should, right? And so we see that also as, as, he, as he pretty much uses this as a preface for spiritual gifts. We see that spiritual giftedness does not always mean spiritual maturity. Spiritual giftedness does not always mean spiritual maturity. Man, you could have all 21 gifts of the Holy Spirit and be uh, so immature in your walk with the Lord. Right? We've all received, according, Paul would say, according to the, to the gifting of the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts. Right? And so we know that the Bible teaches that the moment that you believe in Christ, the moment you've been born again by faith, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells you. Right? First Corinthians tells us that, that, that now our, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit of God indwells us, and the, the Spirit of God gives us spiritual gifts as He sees fit. Right? Not all of us have the same gifts. Not all of us have uh, the, the same workings of those gifts. Right? But the Holy Spirit distributes to the body of Christ as He sees fit spiritual gifts. And so somebody could have, again, all 21 gifts of the Holy Spirit, but yet still be envious, still be jealous, still be contentious, still be given over to pride, still be selfish, right? Still uh, walk in selfish ambition or carnal ambition, 
and, and even be spiritually mature. Right? Again, spiritual giftedness does not equate spiritual maturity. You could be as gifted by the Holy Spirit as, 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 as God desires to gift you, and that doesn't mean that you're spiritually mature. And that's important. I, I said that I said it three times already. It's important. I think I mainly say it to myself. Right? Because I recognize that God uses me uh, in certain areas. And, and, but that doesn't mean that, all right, man, I have a right. Right? I still have to continue to check those other areas of my life. Because I'm easily as susceptible to pride and to anything else that, 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 that men and women fall to as anybody else. Just because God is using you, right? I mean, doesn't mean that, that, that you're uh, protected from those things. If anything, man, when you're more in the spotlight, you're more susceptible to falling to certain sins like pride because God is using you. Right? And so Paul would say, all right, he says, check your heart. Check your heart. Right? And so really we see that as we even serve with each other in ministry. I mean, it's a reason why a lot of people would just butt heads in ministry. Why? Because even though we're gifted with spiritual gifts, doesn't mean we're spiritually mature. Right? That's the reason why a lot of people butt heads, right? You, you rub elbows mm-hmm. the wrong way with people in ministry. Why? Because we're still sinners. We're still sinners and we're not perfect. Right? All of us have still a level of immaturity, spiritual maturity that God is desiring to work out in us. As we spend time with Him, as we grow in our walks with Him, as we grow in, in, in His Word, as we grow in our relationships with Him. Right? And so we see then that, that Paul is going to, to relate the body of Christ, right, which is the church, to a physical human body. And again, he says this in verse 4. He says, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, he says, so we being many, talking about the church, are one body in Christ. And individually members of one another. One another. Right? And when he says member, he's talking about the members of the body. It could be fingers, hands, toes, palms, uh, forearms, right? elbows, uh, thighs, uh, pinky toes, everything. He says, look man, we're all members of one body. Us as a church, as a universal church of Christ. Not just Calvary Chapel, not just this name or that, that name. But anybody who has believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. He says, man, we're all members of one body. We're all members of one body. Right, yesterday we did an outreach up on the hill and one of the things that I love the most is that there was like, what would you say, maybe like, like five different churches there? Or five different, you know, churches represented there. And, uh, and I loved it because we all just came together as one body in Christ. Right? And, that's, and, and really when you get to heaven, you see that God's not going to ask you, right, did you go to a Calvary Chapel or did you go to a Praise Chapel or which church did you go to? All right, you're sitting in this section, you're in this section, you're in that one. Calvary Chapel's all the way in the back. <laughs> No, God doesn't care about those things, right? He's going to say, what did you do with my son? Right? What, did you do, what did you do with my son? That's all that's going to matter in heaven, right? What did you do with my son? And so Paul, again, he relates the body of Christ, the church, to a physical human body. He says, look, man, just like the body is made up of many members, but they're all tied to one another. He says, so is the church. Made up of many different members, all have their own functions, but we're all tied to one another. All right? He talks about this also in 1 Corinthians 12, where he says, uh, there in 1 Corinthians 12, 20, uh, just the last few of those verses, he says, But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. He says, And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we, we bestow greater honor. He says, And our unpresentable um, parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. It says, but God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks it. That there should be no schisms in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Right? And again, as Paul is describing the church, and he's relating it to a human body, he says, look man, we're all different parts of, different members, different functions, different purposes, but we're all tied to one another, and one is not uh, above or below another or more important of or less important than another so, but we're all tied to one another right and we and we need each other what uses a hand if I have no arm right what uses fingers if I have no uh, palms or I don't know what this called what's the top part of your hand right what use is my feet if I have no shins or, or thighs I says man we all need each other in the body of Christ and and we see that in most cases, it's those parts of the body which are unseen or, or less seen that are actually more important to the life and the function of the human body. 
man, we see each other's skin and face and all these things, but you don't see what's going on inside of what really matters. My heart pumping blood, you know, at whatever speed it does. Uh, all these different blood vessels, tissues, muscle tissue, joints and bone marrow that hold my life, my body together, right? You never, we never see those things in each other, but yet they're like the most important parts of our body, right? And Paul will say, man, it's the same thing with the church. Sometimes it's those members that you don't see too often or that you'll never see that are more important. All right? And I'm so thankful for those members. Man, those members in the body of Christ whom God has called to, hey man, go early and just set up or hey man, just go in the toilets or do this or do that or work behind the scenes, accounting, uh, getting all the, all the numbers together, all that stuff that is necessary right, for the body of Christ to function uh, in a proper way. And Paul would say, hey man, sometimes it's those members of the body of Christ who are not seen that are actually more, more important. And so he goes on to say, then as he, as he again equates the body of Christ, the church, to a human body, we all need each other, different purposes, different giftings. Now he says this in verse 6. He says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, then let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministry. He who teaches in teaching. He says, he who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads, do it with diligence. And he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And so we see that Paul says, and really it's the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul. He says, having then gifts differing from one another. And so here's the reality of it. That God has all given, that God has given all of us gifts. Right? Paul would say it again in 1 Corinthians 12. That the Holy Spirit distributes spiritual gifts. The, body, the Bible mentions 21 gifts of the Holy Spirit. And 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that, that the Holy Spirit distributes the gifts to the body of Christ as He sees fit. Right? And then Paul would also tell us, hey, but earnestly desire the best gifts. Right? Not that one gift is above another, but really that uh, whatever is best for that purpose or for that moment. If God is coming to an outreach and there's a bunch of you know, uh, uh, sinners that need to be uh, shared the gospel with, I'm like, Lord, give me that gift of evangelism. Right? So I could be effective in evangelism. And then Paul would say this, out of all the 21 gifts of the Holy Spirit, every single gift is for the edification of one another, except one. There's only one gift of the Holy Spirit that Paul says, look man, that's for the believer, that's for the individual. When this person exercises this gift, he edifies himself only, not the body of Christ, unless there's uh, a partnering gift. And that's the gift of speaking in tongues. Right, we see that the Lord has given uh, certain um, individuals in the body of Christ the, the gift of speaking in, 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 a, in a tongue that only God understands. And Paul would say, look, man, for the person who's speaking in tongues, he says, it does nobody any good if he speaks in a tongue full of, in a room full of 20 people and no one understands what he's saying. He's only edifying himself. Paul would say, unless there's someone there with the gift of interpretation of tongues, which is also one of the 21 gifts, because then he could translate what the guy said, right, and everybody could be edified. Other than that, then that's the only gift in the Bible mentioned, the only spiritual gift that is for the individual, right, for the edifying of the individual. All the other gifts, though, Paul would say, it's for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so Paul now goes into, again, he's saying, these gifts are differing according to the grace that is given to us. He says, so let us use them. God has given us these spiritual gifts for one purpose and one purpose only. So that we could give them back to Him by using them. Using them to edify one another. Using them to just uh, be walk effectively for Him. Just let us use them. Let us use them. And so God, God's desire is that we would use those spiritual gifts with which He has equipped us right thinking too highly of yourself and, and and using these gifts is wrong but thinking so lowly of yourself that you don't that, that you don't use them out at all is equally as wrong right the, the the will of god is that we would know our gifts and that we would walk in these gifts that we would use these gifts and as he begins to to kind of just uh give us a list a short list of of, of gifts right we're going to go through each each one of them and i'm going to give you the definition of them but if you want to do your own study on spiritual gifts, we're going to do one after the book of Romans. And then, um, but if you want to do one on your own before then, you could look at Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. That's where that 12, 12, 4. Romans 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. It covers all the 21 gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul mentions one gift here. The first one he says, he says, if prophecy, he says, man, if God has given you the gift of prophecy, he says, then use it. He says, if prophecy, then let us prophesy in proportion to our faith and so according to the strong's concordance uh the definition of this gift of prophecy is this i'm going to read, read it to you right out of the 
the definition says the gift of prophecy is a special ability that God gives to certain members of the body of Christ to receive and to communicate an immediate message of God to his people through a divinely anointed utterance. There may be an element of future, but not necessarily. Right? This is primarily exercised through the teaching ministry. And so when people think of prophecy, you think, oh man, he's saying something's going to happen in the future. And so although prophesying can have an element of uh, a, a futuristic element, it's not always the case. Right? And it's not necessarily that. More than uh, foretelling, it's more forth-telling. Not so much foretelling something that's going to happen, but just forth-telling the Word of God. Right? God uses you in someone's life to just, man, speak the Word to them. Hey, I'm going through this. I'm going through this situation. I've got something going on, and I'm not, I don't know what to do. Hey, man, trip out, because the Bible actually talks about it. It says this. Hey, man, you're exercising the gift of prophecy because you're forth-telling a message from God using His Word. Right? And so that's actually the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so... Uh, that's one gift that's practiced from the pulpit uh, just about every single time um, uh, a person comes up to teach, right? Someone has accused Calvary Chapel Ministries of not uh, believing in the gifts of the Holy Spirit because they don't, typically you don't walk into a Calvary Chapel and see a lot of uh, charismatic use of the Holy Spirit or a lot of the visible ones. So I've heard people say, oh, well, Calvary Chapel doesn't even believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit because they don't see certain ones exercised. But yet, you can walk into any Calvary Chapel church that's teaching the Bible on any given Sunday, Wednesday, or any other service and see the gift of teaching exercise, the gift of, uh, of, of pastor, shepherd, the gift of uh, word of encouragement, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, prophecy, right? All these different gifts just in one service, right, by one person. Heavy, huh? And so he goes on to say, this is a prophecy, then prophesy in proportion to our faith. He says, or if ministry, that's the second gift that he mentions, ministry, he says, let us use it in our ministering, right? And so the gift of ministry is also uh, uh, defined as service, our service or ministry. And the gift of ministry, by definition, is this. Ministry. So according to Strong's Concordance, the gift of ministry or service is the gift of service is a special ability God gives to certain members of the body of Christ to identify the unmet needs involved in a task related to God's work and to make use of available resources to meet those needs and help accomplish the desired results. Simply put is, man, you get somewhere, you see a need, you, in your mind, you, you look around and, and, and in mind, you see a need and in your mind you already resolve that need and you take it upon yourself to resolve that need without anybody telling you anything. That's the gift of ministry. That's the gift of service. And as simple as it sounds, a lot of people don't have it. <laughs> you show up and like, oh man, uh, uh, man, someone should really, man, this fourth grade jury, someone should really sweep it. And you're like, dude, there's a mop and there's a broom right there next to you, but you're thinking, man, somebody should do it. And sometimes it doesn't come natural to certain individuals, right? You think, man, it's so common sense, right? But the gift of ministry and service is specifically, you know, when God just puts that in, in an individual's heart and mind to just see unmet needs, and in their mind they see that unmet need, and then they, something goes on in their mind, go through all the, all the numbers, crunch up, and they're like, all right, I could, I could do this, and they just do it, right? Man, so important, right? Such an important gift, and is often overlooked, right? But such an important gift in the body of Christ, right? Service. Or ministry, the another gift. And if you guys are, are, are curious about these gifts, um, you could go to. Um, I'm reading them from the list is you can find it online. But I'm going on specifically. It's called builtforlife.org, and it's built the number four, so not F O R, but built the number four, life.org, builtforlife.org. And you go into the tab where it says studies and go into spiritual gifts. And so Paul mentions again the, the, the gift of ministry or service. He says, man, if you have that gift of ministry or service, he says, then, then let us use it in our ministry. And then he mentions the third gift here. He says, teaching. He says, he who teaches, then use it in teaching. Right? Use it in teaching. And so we see that the gift of teaching according to Strong's Concordance, right? According to, to the, the biblical gift of it is, I mean, the biblical definition is Sorry, it's got all 21 here. I'm going through down the list. Uh, teaching, teaching, teaching. Sorry, pray with me. Teaching. The gift of teaching is a special ability God gives to certain members of the body of Christ 
to communicate clearly and apply effectively the truth of God's word in such a way that others will learn. Right? One way to know if you have to get from teaching is if you can effective if you can communicate God's word effectively with clarity and if people are learning. Man, if you think you're if you call yourself a teacher and you're and, and no one's no one in your classes is learning, I mean I'm talking about secular school. Man, you're a teacher and, and you have this class and, and all the kids walk into your class and they, they walk out uh, less knowledgeable than how they walked in, maybe you're not called to be a teacher. Right? And kind of similar in the body of Christ. Right? A lot of people, man, they, they desire this gift because it's the one that's always like, oh, put on display. Right? right here, the gift of teaching. It's the one that's always seen. And a lot of people kind of uh, gravitate towards, man, I want to be seen. I want to be noticed. I want people to know my name. Right? And so they go out there, they, they, they try to teach or whatever, and you see like, man, this guy just... He's missing it, right? He's missing it, right? There's, there's a, you have the ability, but also you have the gift, right? Somebody could be a gift, a, 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 a skilled teacher, right? You go to school, you learn how to communicate certain things, but there's certain things in the Bible that you just need the gift of teaching for, right? I heard Pastor Chuck say one time, he says, I would rather have, talking about teaching from the Pope, he says, I would rather have a spirit-filled middle schooler come in and fill in and, and, and teach a Sunday morning than some uh, three masters, doctorate, you know, uh, professor, right, who doesn't believe in God, right? Because there's certain things that, that can only be accomplished through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I feel the same way, right? Credentials and all these things as far as teaching the, teaching the Bible are, are they're good, but they're not necessary. I, I'm ashamed to say this, but man, I dropped out of high school my sophomore year. I didn't even make it past like four months. I dropped out, went to continuation school, got expelled the first day uh, never went back to school and I never got any education other than that 2020 I, I ventured out and got my GED and I passed it Ooh. but that's it that's it right? <laughs> no, but and that's not too like man I say that shamefully right because I wish I had more 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 education but uh, I see that God has called me to be a teacher of his word right God has teach me God has called me to be a teacher of his word and we see that though natural or, or though a, a scholastic uh, uh, equip, equip, equipping is is helpful when it comes to teaching God's word it's not necessary right the church was built on uh, the effectiveness of 12 knuckleheads fishermen uh, one guy was a tax collector that everyone hated uh, one guy was just a rebel against the the, 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 the the Roman government I mean none of these guys for the most part were Educated in a, in, in, a, in a scholastic sense, right? For the fisherman back then, man, he would have probably been well, out there uh, fishing since he was a kid, so never had time to go to school, never had time to learn the Greek or the Hebrew, never had time to go out there and listen to teachers, and yet Jesus said, you, follow me, you, follow me, you, be my disciple, right? And the church of God was built, was established on the backs of these 12 uh, knuckleheads, right? So we see that God uses the foolish, but that's not an excuse to stay foolish, Right? So if God has called you to be a teacher, if God has called you to, 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 to minister His Word, right? though God calls the foolish to confound the wise, that's not an excuse to stay foolish. Right? I still do my part and I, and, I, and I take it upon myself to, man, to know the Word. If I'm going to come out here and teach the Word, I'm gonna, I, make it, I, put a, I make it a sense, I make it a priority to know what it is that I'm teaching. Right? And I'm, I'll say this, I mean, man, I, I stay up all night uh, preparing something to give you guys this this. Sunday morning or, or Wednesday Wednesday night is kind of harder right but, but Sunday morning and not because I'm like oh my god I'm not I'm not saying this so you could look at me or share and wait but I'm saying man God if you're God has called you to be a teacher be diligent diligent to know the word to study the word right and to give something fresh I'd rather have something fresh in my heart and I do it because I'd rather have something fresh in my heart uh, uh, nice and warm to give out to you instead of microwaving something from like five months ago right I would rather eat a fresh home-cooked meal that was cooked like five seconds ago than uh, a microwave dinner that I bought like last year. All right, and so that's how that's my approach to the Word of God. Man, I'd rather give it fresh, right? While it's still in my heart. And so another gift that that Paul that Paul uh, points out here, he says, he says, verse eight, he who exhorts, he says, man, an exhortation, right? And so we see now the gift of exhortation. And so the gift of exhortation, by definition, is the special ability that God gives to certain members of the body of Christ to minister words of comfort, edification, encouragement, and counsel to other members of the body in such a way that they feel helped and healed. The gift of exhortation. Right? Pretty much it's a, it's a gift of man of encouragement. 
right? You feel, you see someone in the body of Christ or even out there in the world who's just hurting, who just is down, who needs to just hear some, some, something good. And, and God just put it in you to just go and to just lift that person up. Such an, also, it's such an important, all, all the gifts are important, but such an important gift because the world will never lack hurting people. The world will, will never lack people who are discouraged. And the church will never lack people who are discouraged. Right? So God, if God has given you that gift of exhortation where you just, man, you see somebody just hurting down, whatever, you know, you know the situation, God just puts it in you, you're going to just cheer them up and exercise it. Because you don't know how far somebody's word will go. You don't know how far, you know, man, your, your exhortation, your compliment, or you're just lifting up. You don't know how far that's going to go. Man. And so, Paul would say, or again, if exhortation, then man, exhort. He says, he who gives, another one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, giving. He says, he who gives, do it with liberality. Meaning, do it just openly, right? Without restraint. And so, the gift of giving, uh, according to the Bible, all right, there's, it's, sorry, let me pull up the exact definition because I don't want to chop it up. But the gift of giving is the special ability that God gives to certain members of the body of Christ to give to certain members of the body of Christ to, contrib- to contribute their material resources to the work of the Lord with liberality and also with cheerfulness. And so plainly put, and the gift of giving is when God puts it in your heart to just give. A lot of times it's, it's a monetary as far as money, but sometimes it's just, man, your time, your service. And you do it without restraint and you do it with just, I mean, cheerfully. You love to do it, right? I'm so thankful for, 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 for this gift as well. <clears throat> I remember one time I was, uh, we were doing Bible college and I was right behind in my payments and I didn't know. I was just like, man, trying to keep up, right? Rent, this, that, the other. And God put it on someone's heart to pay my tuition. I, I didn't know, like, I didn't tell anybody. But someone just saw me and maybe the Lord spoke to him or whatever. And next thing I know, I just get an email from the director. Hey, man, uh, somebody paid your tuition for this semester. So don't worry about it. I'm like, wow, man, thank you. Right? That's just one example. Right? But again, the gift of giving, man, the, so many people in the church, right? You look at church of like thousands or, or hundreds or even like small churches like this. And you don't see all, all the things that, go, that, that need to, you know, unfortunately go on behind the scenes in order to keep church doors open. Electricity, water. Uh, ran all these things, right? Things that we don't really talk about or, or whatever. But yet, and, and some people who are in the body of Christ who are in the church, they're like, man, well, I don't serve in ministry. I don't have time or I don't have to do this. I don't do that. But God has just put it in their hearts to give, right? And not all of us have to come up here and teach. Not all of us have to go serve in children's ministry. Man, the person who just, you know what? God has just put it in my heart to give to the church. Man, thank you. Because that's keeping the doors open, right? And and as long as we keep the doors open, then man, people could be fed, could be ministered minister to, could be encouraged, Right? And so the gift of giving, pretty, uh, plainly put, is, man, the gift that God puts in certain people's hearts to just give. But give with, notice it says, cheerfulness. Right? Meaning that if you say you have the gift of giving, you're like, oh, man, just, oh. You walk out like, oh, right, right. Like, dude, you probably don't have the gift of giving, man. You're probably doing it grudgingly. And then Paul would say in First Corinthians, just don't even do it at all if you didn't do it that way. Because God doesn't need your money, man. Right? And so that's the gift of giving. And so... Another one of the gifts that Paul mentions here is, apart from giving, he says, uh, mercy. He says, he who shows mercy, do it with cheerfulness. Sorry, I just completely skipped one. He says, exhortation, gifts, giving, and leadership. Right? So he says, he who leads, do it with diligence. And so we see that, that leadership is, uh, is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Right? Um, believe it or not, I mean, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to lead uh, a work for the Lord, lead a church, lead a congregation, lead a ministry, right? And it's hard, man, when you don't have the gift of, lead, uh, of leadership and you're trying to lead, uh, it's hard because you're striving, right? And one way to know if God has called you to be a leader is if you look back and if someone's following you, cool, man, maybe God has called you to be a leader. Uh, if you look back and you lost everyone, some of the sheep are scattered, some are kind of fell off the wayside, some of them are limping and hurting, and you're like, well, hold on, wait for me. You probably don't have the gift of leadership, right? But the gift of leadership, uh, by definition, is... This is the special ability that God gives to certain members of the body of Christ to set goals and according with God's purposes for the future and to communicate these goals to others in such a way that they voluntarily and harmoniously work together to accomplish those goals for the glory of God. Plainly put, you receive vision from God. You're able to communicate that vision to the body. 
and you're able to uh, uh, delegate right, roles, positions, responsibilities in order to fulfill that vision that God has given you in such a way that it just flows naturally. The gift of leadership. Right? So useful. So needed. And then lastly in this little section he says, and he who shows mercy, do it with cheerfulness. The gift of mercy. And so the gift of mercy, according to, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to the Bible and by definition is this, is the special ability that God gives to certain members of the body of Christ to feel genuine empathy. Not sympathy, but empathy. Empathy and compassion for individuals, both Christian and non-Christians, who suffer distressing physical, mental, or emotional problems, and to translate that compassion into cheerfully done deeds which reflect Christ's love and alleviate the suffering. Have you ever just, man, you're driving down the street, you see a stranger, and man, like you just begin to get burdened for that person to the point of tears. I don't know why. I mean, sometimes that happens to me. Or like, I'll just, I don't even know the individual, and I see him walking down the street or crossing the street, or, and just something does, like, triggers, and I just, I feel like I just know this guy's whole life or whatever, and I just begin to get heartbroken from him. I'm like, man, Lord, and I'm like, what do I do? I just pray for him. And, and, and so the gift of mercy is just is this special ability that God has given to certain individuals to just feel compassion for others in such a way that, man, you feel led to help out or you feel led to pray for them or you feel led to do something about that stirring up in your heart. All right, the gift of mercy. Uh, man, it's, it's so needed. It's so needed. I, as, as, as there's this old hymn uh, that, that used to be sung in the church. It says, we are... Man, I just completely left my mind. But but the main thing it says, and all know we are Christians by our love, by our love, and they'll know we are Christians by our love and love, man. Right, that love that the body of Christ should have for one another and for the world. And don't keep it to yourself. Don't keep it to just the confines of the four walls of church. Oh, they're the body of Christ. I'm gonna love on them. But if those in the world, whatever, they'll figure it out. No, man, love. Right, we're called to love one another. The Bible says that the world will know that we are that we belong to the Lord because of our love for one another, right? And this this gift of mercy is one way that the Lord uses it, man. That He just again He opens up your eyes uh, to someone's uh, physical, mental, or just emotional uh, distresses or problems, right? And, and He causes you to just have compassion for the individual. Compassion, that's man one of the most beautiful gifts is just this gift of mercy, when someone can just be heartbroken for someone else and you don't even know them. When someone can just be heartbroken for someone else and like, man, you never even met them. You don't know what they're going through, but man, they just break my heart. Right? Compassion. That's the heart of the Savior. That's the heart of Jesus. We're told there in one of the Gospels that as a, Jesus was, that's it, man, he had been ministering all week long. And then one, on one occasion, he was tired. He wanted to get some rest and then eat. But it says that he looked at the multitudes and it says that he was moved with compassion. Because he saw them as sheep scattered with no shepherd. So what do you do? He fed them. That compassion, man. That, that the heart of the that the heart of the Savior. Somebody put it this way, and uh, sorry. In closing, in closing, right? You'll think, all right, and covering some of these gifts, you know. Uh, put practically. Let's say somebody. Let's say you know. All right, one of the kids from the children's ministry comes over. Hey, I'm thirsty. Uh, he fills up a glass, you know, of water. He's bringing it over to me. He opens the door and he trips. He falls. The water spills. The glass shatters. And we're like, ah. The gift of prophecy, going back to the first one, would say, the person with the gift of prophecy would say, oh man, uh, this happened uh, because uh, he walked in too fast, the door swung open too fast and he fell, uh, you know, and so, you know, this is what happened, this is what caused it. That would be the gift of prophecy, right? The person with the gift of ministry would see that and immediately get up, start picking up all the glass, you know, start getting the mop, start, uh, start, uh, start drying everything up, you know, uh, making sure he's okay, the gift of ministry, right? The gift of uh, of teaching would begin to say, "All right, look, uh, it's unfortunate this happened. Uh, he tripped over that little that little piece of wood right there. You know, we should fix this. Uh, uh, maybe uh, maybe we, we should, you know, if we do this or we do that that other thing, you know, maybe we could avoid this in the future, right? The gift of teaching. Now, the gift of exhortation would go up to that kid. Hey, are you okay? It's all right. Don't worry about it. It's okay. It happens all the time. Look, you're all, you're all right, buddy. Come on, get up." Come on, get up. It's okay. Here, let's go get you. Let's go get you changes. Let's get you some towels. It's all right. Don't worry about it. And the gift of exhortation. The gift of giving. And the person sees the glass shatter. And man, you know, I think it's probably worth about 10 bucks. I didn't put 20 bucks in the thing. Right? I'll never know. Pay for, pay for the cost, right? 
the person with, uh, with the gift of, 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 of mercy, right? Again, he'll go up to the person and, and, and just, oh, I'm so hard. And they'll make, hey, nobody laugh at him, man. Be quiet. Shut up, man. It's all right, man. Come on. Again, that compassion for the person, right? To cover some of those gifts. The gift of leadership. I missed that one, right? The gift of leadership would see that that, that, that happen. That, and he would say, all right, guys, look, let's hop them up. Hey, uh, can you grab this? Hey, can you, can you, can you grab that mop? Hey, can you do that? Let's, all right. Begin to see the whole thing as, as, a, as a whole. Begin to start delegating. Right? Those are just some of the gifts. Right? Again, once we finish the book of Romans, I want to do a, a short study on the gifts of the Holy Spirit and then jump into uh, one of the Gospels. You know, but I encourage you guys. I know I'm, I went long. I'm like at an hour right now. But this is important. You know, and, and, and I encourage you guys, man, to do your own study on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Look up on that website, Built for Life. Built the number four life.org. There's a list right there given with all the scriptural references. I encourage you to pray for your spiritual gifts. If you do not know what your spiritual gifts are, I encourage you to pray for them. Because God's will is to reveal them to you, and He will. He will. Sometimes through another individual. Sometimes through just uh, the Word. But the main way of knowing, the, the, the main way that God reveals His spiritual gifts is as you serve in ministry. Serving in ministry, getting your hands dirty. Right? Some of us do construction, do, do a laborious work. I show up to the job site and they're like, all right, we've got uh, some underground going on, some digging, you got to be on the excavator, we got to run some pipe. Right? Uh, what do I do? I go and I get on the excavator and I know, all right, I don't know how to work this thing, so that's not what I do. So boom, I can write that off the list, all right? That's not what I'm calling you. Kind of, kind of similar to, 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 to gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? You won't know unless you're in it, right? You won't know unless you're in it and you're like, all right, this is what God has called me to do. Right, so I encourage you guys, man, get involved in ministry, get involved in, in the work of the Lord, and discover your gifts. Pray for those gifts, and I'm going I'm to pay for that.